Good day, everyone. It's a beautiful day in the Psyche community. Welcome to Psyche Podcast, where we are dedicated to improving mental health together. You are here with your podcast hosts, Dr. Zamika Simmons Yan and Alyssa Peckham, where we will spill the tea on hot topics in psychiatry. That's right. Here on Psyche Community Podcast, you will get a quick lowdown on what's steaming in the world of mental health. We ask you to listen to the episodes, rate us, and review us. Better yet, share the Psyche Podcast with your friends where we all can sip on the Psyche tea and maybe have a side of lemon with it. Well, I hope you're excited because today we have a lot of tea to spill. Yes, thank you, Amika. And with that, I hope everyone ran to get their steaming hot tea, especially if they live in the Northeast like me, because it is so unexpectedly cold here today. So that was pretty upsetting. We had a week or so of really nice, sunshiny weather. And then, you know, today we're back in the low 20s. So I'm not a happy camper. Uh, I was so, so ready for warmer weather. But in the meantime, cozying up today, as we always do with tea for today's episode. And so with that, I am really excited to introduce uh, to our Psyche community that our topic today is decriminalization of mental health. Now, you might be thinking, you know, what in the world is that? And, you know, that's exactly why I'm so excited today, because I feel like this is a topic that we don't really talk about enough, and therefore it's probably very misunderstood with the lack of attention that it gets. And Speaking for myself, I, I certainly don't know enough about, you know, what it is or, you know, is there anything that I can do, any sort of action that I can take? So very, very much looking forward to what our featured guest has to uh, say today. So without further ado, I, I'm so excited to introduce to you our featured guest, Caroline Fisher O'Neill, who again will be speaking to us about decriminalization of mental health. And Caroline is the East Director for State Government Affairs at OTSCA. And prior to joining this team, which she has served on for nearly 10 years now, she, she actually worked in the Massachusetts State Legislature on Health Policy, first serving as the General and Health Policy Counsel to the Senate Chair of the Healthcare Finance Committee and then later as the Health Policy Council to the Speaker of the House. So very, very uh, expert expert on this topic. And through this, she gained a significant amount of exposure to the challenges inherent to the healthcare policy landscape. So that's exactly why we reached out to her for this topic. But Currently in her role, she works with the government affairs team to drive open access to treatments and services for OTSCA's patient populations, and she leads initiatives to support OTSCA's commitment to helping individuals with serious mental illness. And she currently resides in Brooklyn, New York, so I'm sure she's a bit chilly today, too, with this weather. I didn't quite quite check it over there, but we're not that far away. But uh, nonetheless, Caroline, a very warm welcome to uh, to our Psych U Community podcast. And, you know, my background as a pharmacist is so very different from what you do and the the roles that you've held in your past. So I know I, I kind of gave a little teaser in the introduction, but can you tell us a little bit more about what you do in your current role and what that really means for our mental health community? Sure, I'm happy to do that. Uh, thank you so much for the kind introduction. And I will tell you that it is very cold in Brooklyn. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> first, first and foremost, let me say that um, you know, thank you for the invitation and the opportunity to come and speak with you today. And I think that the field medical affairs team is doing great things through through the Psyche program. So 
so kudos to you all. And uh, to give you a little more background, um, I, you know, have worked at the at the state legislature in Massachusetts and and really um, understanding the kind of cut my teeth, so to speak, with healthcare policy there. And then moving into OSCA, OSCA built this team when I came on board uh, nine, almost 10 years ago. That's right. And um, we have been primarily focusing on ensuring that people with mental illness have access to the treatments and services that are needed for their individualized recovery. And we work with the legislative and regulatory channels in order to ensure that. Uh, we have a team of eight total across the nation working on state government affairs. And then we also have our, our federal lobbyists um, as part of the government affairs team as well. But um, what I think what makes Utsuka unique is our commitment to collaborating and partnering on an array of initiatives that support recovery for those with mental illness. So being a part of the conversation about the decriminalization of mental illness is very important to us. And, and I'm happy to be here today to talk a little bit about, about that. Caroline, that is so spectacular. And you know what? It's even inspiring. I like when you said that Otska and even your division is so engulfed in ensuring recovery for our mental health community. But I have to ask this. I need to know what is the criminalization of mental health? I ask that because it sounds so, you know, intimidating. It sounds, you know, scary, you know? What does it mean though for someone who might be suffering from mental health so that we can better understand what decriminalization means? Sure, Amika, happy to talk about that. And I'm gonna, you know, kind of walk walk us back a little bit in time um, to give more context. So. In, in 1963, the interestingly enough, the last piece of legislation that President Kennedy signed into law was the Community Mental Health Act. And um, that intended to put more resources into building mental health centers in the community so that people with mental illness could remain in their communities rather than l be locked away in institutions where conditions were inhumane. And we've witnessed over time unfortunately, that President Kennedy's vision was never fully realized. Because, you know, today we can take a look around and see uh, that the largest, actually the three largest mental health providers in the nation today are jails. That's Cook County in Illinois, Los Angeles uh, County, as well as Rikers Island in New York. And we have a statistic that says 2 million, 2 million people with serious mental illness enter into our jails on an annual basis. So 60 years of failed mental health policy have placed law enforcement on the front lines of mental illness crisis response and essentially turned jails into the new asylum. So what happened? Uh, I would offer two things that did not happen, and that is first, We've experienced 60 years of not prioritizing funding 
for treatments and services for mental health care as was intended by the Community Mental Health Act. And secondly, people have not really been able to understand mental illness and the need for parity. So rather than treating someone having a psychotic break with the proper healthcare resources, as you would for someone suffering from a heart attack, for example, it has been misunderstood and stigmatized as well as criminalized. And because we have not had a system that was well-funded and understood how to manage mental illness as a chronic condition, the jails have become the default option for dealing with people with mental illness. And I, I find this next statistic to be quite staggering is that individuals with psychiatric diseases like schizophrenia and bipolar disorder are 10 times more likely to be in jail or prison than a hospital bed. And as we know, jails are not built or financed or structured to provide adequate mental health services. So the system is really failing here. And to touch on your, uh, you know, just comment about the understanding decriminalization and criminalization, what came to mind for me was thinking about Mental Health America's Mental Health Bell. So my first MHA conference in Tulsa, Oklahoma was the first time I saw this powerful tribute and symbol of freedom that represented the mission of Mental Health America. So this is a 300 pound bell that has an inscription that says, cast from shackles which bound them, this bell shall ring out hope for the mentally ill and victory over mental illness. So the story behind the bell is that in uh, the 50s, early 50s, the Mental Health Association, now known as Mental Health America, collected in their lobby. They were headquartered in, in New York City, and in their lobby, they collected hundreds and hundreds of the metal restraints that were used on patients in mental hospitals all across the country. And what they did was they uh, collected all these, they shipped them to a bell foundry in Baltimore, Maryland, where they were melted down and cast into this beautiful, magnificent bell that represented freedom and hope for recovery. But the sad reality is that in many ways, shackles from one institution were traded for shackles in another. So people have been working on decriminalization or liberation and, and justice for this community for a long time. And I don't think the mental health community will or should rest until there are no more shackles of any kind for someone with mental illness. Um, but this bell really remains a symbol of hope as it should. And it also represents how much work we do have to do post-institutionalization and towards decriminalizing. Wow. I, I mean, something that stuck out to me was your very first sentence related to 1963, because it, it sounds like we've been intending on 
you know, kind of changing this or at least have identified, right, a need to essentially normalize chronic health conditions since 1963, and it is 2022. Yet, as you mentioned, we still have these select jails that are serving as our, you know, largest or maybe numerically largest mental health providers. And that sounds, you know, 2022, I'm thinking that sounds pretty discouraging. And, you know, to be frank, a little unjust and unethical, especially, you know, I liked that, you know, the transfer of the shackling, like you said, because I think that that, you know, gets people's attention because it sounds very archaic. And, you know, you mentioned a lot of things that didn't happen, which, you know, again, is very unfortunate to hear. But do you know of anything that's being done right now to kind of swing the pendulum the other way, you know, and kind of how far along are we in this? Is it really like a well thought out national initiative or are states kind of tackling this on their own or have we really not even gotten there and maybe we just have advocacy groups working on it right now? I'm hoping that maybe we can bring some brightness to the conversation and then talk about maybe what's being done. Absolutely, Alyssa, there is plenty that is being done and uh, I, I probably I don't have nearly enough time today to talk about all of it, but I'll try to capture some of the things that, that came to mind for me that are worth mentioning. Uh, a number of dif different initiatives are being examined and driven across federal and state legislative landscapes. And within those landscapes, it's really your state and national advocacy groups that are the real drivers of change. And they always have been so to reference back to Mental Health America, they've been around for 113 years, NAMI since 1979, the Kennedy Forum since 2013. So, so groups are continuing to come uh, into uh, existence to address issues that remain uh, on the landscape. And so in response to the current paradigm, we have communities that have begun to adopt policies that seek to decriminalize mental health response. And there are a number of communities across the US landscape. A handful of them are in Eugene, Oregon, a program called CAHOOTS, in Dallas, Texas, a program called Right Care. And then here in my world in New York City, a program called Be Heard. And what these have in common is that they shift the expectation away from traditional law enforcement led model in favor of responses that rely on medical professionals as the point of first contact. And these are certainly developments that are steps in the right direction without question, but arguably we need to go a lot further upstream to address the underlying causes for crisis in the first place so that we prevent people from experiencing these kinds of emergency situations that are more likely to trigger police response. And interestingly enough, Otsuka commissioned the RAND Corporation to issue a, a white paper on transforming the US mental health care system. And RAND is a, is a research organization that's widely known. They develop solutions to public policy changes and I think their worth is their their work is worth a little closer examination here in this discussion because they looked at three specific areas for reform and to simplify them basically it's one uh, finding a doorway to care 
Two, getting through the door. And three, once you've made it inside the door, then what? And I'll break that down a little bit more for you. First, finding a doorway to care. So too often, people with mental health needs do not even make contact with mental health providers. This is in part because of a system in which individuals are unaware of available resources. They fear the repercussions and stigma associated with mental illness and fail to receive proper screenings and diagnosis. And then you also have high need populations such as those with a pattern of homelessness or criminal justice involvement that may also require shepherding to services that best meet their needs. So um, what the what the RAND report does, it goes deeper into that and looks at solutions. But that's the first arena that they address. And then taking a look at the second, which is uh, once a patient is identified as needing care, what are the barriers that are there that uh, obstruct actual receipt of services? And their research found that it's cost to the consumer, capacity of the system to provide adequate care in a timely manner, the location of services, so accessibility, and the suitability of services from the consumer's perspective. And um, they highlight that all, all of these barriers must be removed in order for patients to use services. So they look at that through the, the policy lens of how can we address that, those issues through policy. And then third, it's once you're in the door and once patients are inside the system, what are the uncertainties that remain? Will the care be evidence-based? Will it correspond to the patient's needs? Will it be provided in a timely and consistent manner? And there's no, what they found is there's no real guarantee that mental health systems can answer yes to these types of questions and ultimately improve patient outcomes. For this to happen, the internal mechanics of systems need to be recalibrated and rewards need to be established to align services with patient needs. And people fall through the cracks because of a lack of continuity of care, and this really needs to be addressed. So I strongly encourage anyone listening to take a closer look at the RAND report, which you can find on their website. Um, and, you know, fortunately, there are so many ways in which people are trying to address the systemic issues that when recalibrated can support the movement towards decriminalization. As I mentioned before, there are there are many, many, many things that are being done in this landscape, but I'll just mention a few more that I felt like were important to highlight and um, and timely also. So in terms of, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the lack of mental health parity has been a major impediment to ensuring better upstream care. And so one of the things that's being done actually by the Kennedy Forum, which Otsuka was a supporting founder of in 2013, they are working closely with state legislators and advocacy groups to strengthen the federal parity law that was put uh, came into existence in 2008 and I'm strengthening it by strengthening state laws to support what the intention of that federal law was and uh, what they're 
essentially what they're doing is designing model bills that have been passed in a number of different states now that ensure that people have equal coverage for mental health care treatment and services uh, and for substance use disorder uh, that's on par with any other health insurance coverage. So that's a big part of the, the landscape changing um, that will support people having services more upstream and therefore not waiting, as mentioned before, uh, for an emergency to arise. And then another arena that has a lot of energy behind it right now is the July rollout of the National Mental Health Crisis and Suicide Prevention Number, designated as 988, which is showing up a lot in uh, a lot of different news outlets these days. Once it's fully implemented, the hope is that um, it will ensure that people in crisis are diverted from involvement in the criminal justice system and connected to the appropriate services and support. But it's also important to note that there are growing concerns that 988 will not be able to deliver on its promises unless there are enough federal funds committed and that states supplement the federal money with funding for staffing and ensuring that they have support services available. And so that really brings us back to the very beginning when I mentioned the lack of funding that thwarted the intention and impact of the Community Mental Health Act. So this will be a real litmus test in regards to how much priorities and perspectives have changed since then. But, and this is the last thing I'll mention, we're seeing a growing level of support at the federal level for, for example, certified community behavioral health centers, which is a model that um, alleviates decades old challenges that have led to crisis um, by providing more integrated care 24-7. Um, you know, it's, it's, it involves staffing coordination with social services and criminal justice. So this is a really evolved model of mental health care. And, and I just wanted to highlight that at the end because we're seeing support at the federal level. So I'm, I'm hoping that we're seeing this kind of sea change that we need for the funds that are essential for um, shifting the system and the systemic issues in the system uh, and moving us away from a uh, model where everybody ends up in a jail if they have a mental illness and instead ends up with the proper care they need and in the community. So perhaps it's a model that will actualize the vision of the of the Community Mental Health Act and move us closer to decriminalization. So I know I've given you a lot to think about there. I will I will stop there. And, uh, <laughs> no, <laughs> Caroline, the microphone this is over. No, this is amazing. I'm sitting here and I'm sipping on this lemon tea and it's a little, it wasn't sweet when you said jails have become the default to treat individuals living with mental illness. But I think you put a little honey to it when you told us about the bell and what stuck in your mind, that symbolization of freedom from decriminalization of mental health. And, and I like it. I love that quote, cast 
from the shackles that bound them. I think everyone deserves that freedom. But, you know, I know our listeners are wondering, and you've given given us uh, several different resources, but if they wanted to find out more, are there any resources, other resources on PsyQ that you can drive them to? Absolutely, Amika. There are a number of resources. Um, I would certainly say go to PsychU to learn more about this issue. There are some great webinars and resources examining this topic. Uh, I would encourage uh, folks to explore Mental Health America and NAMI, the National Alliance for Mental Illness, as well as the National Council for Wellbeing, who is really driving, as I mentioned, the um, certified community behavioral health centers. And uh, the one the one last one I will plug is that the Sozoze Foundation, which is which was established in 2019 as the philanthropic arm of Otska, and its primary focus is to eliminate the use of jails and prisons for the diagnosis and treatment of mental illness. And so they've done three great summits over the past. Um, there's good information there. But as I started off this. Uh, podcast saying PsyQ has has really been such a, a great leader in this space of bringing such important issues um, to a place where it's accessible to a number of different people. And um, certainly in regards to this topic, there's been a lot of great work that's put on the site about um, different different programs and initiatives that are trying to chip away at um, at what is a considerable issue that we've been able to highlight today. So there's a lot of great stuff out there, and I appreciate all the work that you all are doing in regards to this. You know, Caroline, thank you so much. Thank you for providing those resources, which we will include in the show notes. So all of our listeners, our tea listeners can go there. But I am just inspired by your passion and your advocacy for our mental health community. And I know if we take the steps to stand just like you are, we can improve mental health together. So thank you, Caroline. Thank you, Amika. Thank you, and Alyssa both. Thank you so much. All right, so there you have it. You've heard it for yourself right here on PsychU Community Podcast. But the beauty is, is that you don't have to stop here. So definitely head over and check out the show notes for the links to find more resources about today's discussion on psychu.org. And as always, if you've enjoyed this episode and you'd like to hear more hot topics right here on the PsychU Community Podcast, please rate and review us and then subscribe so you can always get the new episode right when it drops. And for the social media lovers out there, check out our other social media platforms like Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. So until next time, thank you for listening, everyone, and we hope you have a great day.